You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off, my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The Constant is brought to you by Industrial Artifacts. Are you building a new office? Looking for a cool style for your restaurant? Or maybe you're just trying to nab a conversation piece for your home or apartment? Industrial Artifacts is the place for you. They've got more than 20,000 square feet chock-a-block with vintage lighting, seating, tables, advertising, and other found objects, like antique railroad station sconces, a Wurlitzer electric piano that I would absolutely die for, and a mid-century oxblood leather couch that is so classy it would forcibly eject me if I ever dared try to sit in it. Whether you're outfitting a hip new bar or searching for the ultimate work desk or fabulous kitchen table, Industrial Artifacts has you covered. I dare you, I positively dare you to go to industrialartifacts.net without finding some dreamy new home or office decor to obsess over. It can't be done. They can deliver worldwide and even personally to those who live in Chicagoland. Hey, that's me. So go to industrialartifacts.net today and start drooling over the coolest one-of-a-kind items out there. Wait, wait. Be quiet. Listen to that. You know what that is? That is the sound of a ship. Oh, that's exciting. Because as everyone knows, even numbered Star Trek movies are good, Simpsons episodes where Brad Bird is a creative consultant are great, and constant episodes that start with a boat are the best. And this episode scores very high on the maritime to landlocked ratio. Mostly, we're following this ship. The Oscar II, a steamliner. It's December 4th, 1915, and the Oscar II is about to set sail out of Hoboken, New Jersey. At the harbor, there are 15,000 people waiting to see her off. The crowd includes some major luminaries, Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan, inventor Thomas Edison, plenty of others besides Famous politicians, religious leaders, prominent businessmen, social reformers, they're all here, along with throngs of reporters, well-wishers, and supporters. But most of the people at Hoboken Harbor are probably there for a laugh, or at least out of bemusement. There are a lot of jokes going around about the Oscar II, and even more skepticism. Because the charter of the Oscar II is a very strange one. On December 15, 1915, when ships crossing the Atlantic risk German U-boats to bring war supplies to England, the Oscar II is setting off to do the opposite. Its mission is to bring peace to Europe. 
This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, what's so funny about P-ship and understanding? The end of World War I, and eventually the end of war generally. Peace and pacifism, triumphing over aggression and attrition. As I'm recording this, there are 10 active major wars around the globe. Last year, in 2018, there were 35,941 fatalities in Afghanistan, 23,000 in Syria, 25,705 in Yemen. Then there's Somalia, Iraq, South Sudan, and Mali. Nigeria is still embroiled in wars of several factions, including Boko Haram, who are also active in Cameroon, Niger, and Chad. Then there are the conflicts that are ongoing at a low boil. 458 were killed last year in Kashmir, between India and Pakistan, 171 due to ethnic strife in Myanmar, 304 Israelis and Palestinians. The list goes on like that. 599 in Darfur, 727 in Libya, 838 in the Central African Republic. My point is, from here, in 2019, the idea of world peace seems parodically far-fetched. And sending a boat full of activists into a war zone to end the fighting? Well, that sounds hopelessly Pollyannish. But a little over a century ago, when the Oscar II set sail, the state of the peace movement was very different from today, where it often seems mostly to be a couple of aging hippies with poster board signs on a Saturday street corner. In fact, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the idea of world peace was taken as a very serious and likely prospect. And to understand why, we have to go back to a different war, and a different ship, the American Civil War, and the CSS Alabama. When the South seceded in 1861, the Confederates had several significant disadvantages, not the least of which was its navy, which was decidedly lacking in ships to nave with. On its founding in February, the Confederate Navy had 30 ships, and only 14 of those were actually seaworthy. Meanwhile, the Union had 90. So if the slavers, because that's what they were and that's what they fought for, if the slavers wanted to stand a chance against the North, they needed some boats. But the South only had one dry dock to build in and not much in the way of materials. So they had to get creative, hiring privateers, raiding Union shipyards, and surreptitiously commissioning the CSS Alabama. Commander James Bullock was the chief foreign agent of the Confederacy to Great Britain, who arranged for the building of a new ship of war near Liverpool, England. Because Great Britain was officially neutral in the American Civil War, Englishmen were prohibited from making military vessels for either side, but they could craft unarmed ships. So John Laird, Sons and Company, built a secret ship known only as Hull No. 290, which had all of the necessary reinforcements and emplacements of a warship, but no actual guns. On July 29, 1862, Hull No. 290, christened Enrica, slipped secretly out of port and headed for the Azores, where it was outfitted with six 32-pound broadside cannons, a 100-pound 7-inch pivot cannon on its foredeck, and an 8-inch pivot cannon on its aft. In short, it was a monster. 
On August 24th, 1862, the newly armed to the teeth gunboat was sailed out to international waters under Captain Raphael Semis. As the British flags were dropped, the bugler played Dixie, a cannon fired, and the HMS Enrica was rechristened, the CSS Alabama. For two months, she stayed around the Azores, hunting, burning, and sinking Union merchant ships. Then she made her way across the Atlantic for New England, continuing to attack, capture, and kill any ship flying northern colors all the way. This was the job of the CSS Alabama, to destroy civilian vessels sailing under the American flag. The term for this kind of mission is a commerce raider, and the CSS Alabama was an outstandingly accomplished commerce raider. Captain Simis sailed south along the Americas to Brazil, then across the Atlantic again to Southern Africa. The crew spent six months in the East Indies, then turned around the Cape of Good Hope and made for France. In total, she's destroyed 65 Union ships and boarded around 450, most of them merchant marines, before she finally made for dry dock in Cherbourg, France for repairs. But the Alabama was being tracked by the USS Kearsarge, which anchored outside the harbor, waiting for Alabama to sail. On June 19th, 1864, Alabama met the Kearsarge and was, within an hour, thoroughly wrecked. In her two and a half years of service, she'd done something to the tune of $6 million worth of damage to the Union. $96 million, adjusted for inflation today. But that was only directly. The harassment and terror of Confederate commerce raiders caused many ships to change flags, abandoning their service to the Union. More than 250 Union ships were captured or sunk by raiders, and more than 700 dropped their flags. That was half the American merchant fleet gone. When the war ended in 1865, the Union, now the United States of America once again, suck it Robert E. Lee, was like, hey England, eat shit. Great Britain had allowed the Alabama to be built and sold as a warship to the Confederacy under the most obvious of loopholes. Everyone knew what it was for and where it was going. And it wasn't just the Alabama. There was the CSS Florida, built and christened in England as HMS Oretto, the CSS Tallahassee, previously the HMS Atalanta, and the CSS Lark, a blockade runner, also built by John Laird and Sons, just like the Alabama. And everybody knew that Prime Minister Palmerston and Foreign Secretary Russell were sympathetic to the Confederacy. Not to mention that most of those merchant marines who dropped the Stars and Stripes started flying the Union Jack. What a convenient side effect. In 1869, the United States claimed that Great Britain had violated their neutrality and both directly and collaterally damaged the nation. For restitution, Senator Charles Sumner demanded England fork over either $2 billion or Canada. Yeah, Canada. Obviously, Britain wasn't having that, and neither was Canada as long as we're on the subject. So what was to be done? History knew the answer. This kind of dispute had existed since time immemorial, and it had only ever been settled one way. War. The U.S. had beaten England in 1776, England had beaten the U.S. in 1812, and now, in 1870, it looked like we were finally going for the tiebreaker. But nobody actually wanted to go to war. 
America had just finished a terrible, bloody conflict and was in the middle of Reconstruction. And it was fighting the Klan in the South and massacring the Native Americans in the West. Meanwhile, Great Britain was... Well, I'll be honest, I have no idea what was happening in Great Britain. But the over-under on the number of occupations and wars England was embroiled with at any given time in the 19th century is like, what, seven? So I imagine they had plenty on their plate, too. In 1871, Hamilton Fish, the Secretary of State, brokered an agreement with Sir John Rose, England's Receiver General. That agreement proposed a new idea, international arbitration. A tribunal was held in Geneva, Switzerland in 1872 with a representative of Britain, Lord Chief Justice Alexander Cockburn, a representative from America, Charles Francis Adams, special envoy, and three international neutral arbiters, Federico Sclopis from Italy, Jacob Stamfli from Switzerland, and Baron Marsus Antonio Giorgio from Brazil. Together, the five negotiated an end to the kerfuffle, no armies required. Great Britain agreed to pay out $15.5 million to the U.S., and the U.S. agreed to subtract a settlement of $1.9 million for illegally blockading Great Britain during the war. Sounds simple, sounds obvious, but nobody had tried anything like this before. And now that it worked, the world was gobsmacked. This was the beginning of public international law and arbitration. It set the stage for the Hague and Geneva Conventions and everything that followed. Suddenly, there was a peaceful and hopefully just way for nations to work out disputes. There had always been pacifists, and there'd been a nascent peace movement since at least the early 19th century, but they'd also always been as well-meaning as they were impractical. Fine, as a moral or ethical position, saying you're against war is perfectly reasonable. But pragmatically speaking, what was the alternative? After 1871, there was one, and the starry-eyed peaceniks started looking a lot more grounded. In the late 19th and early 20th century, there were more than 120 international tribunals that either put an end to or preempted armed conflicts between nations. And the peace movement was made up of more than just Quakers and philanthropists. It was mainstream, with prominent politicians, businessmen, activists, thinkers, writers, and more. The case for peace was strong and getting stronger. On the other hand, somebody assassinated Franz Ferdinand. Specifically, a someone named Gavrilo Princip. Gavrilo was a 19-year-old Bosnian Serb. Bosnia was, at the time, ruled by the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was, in time, meant to be ruled by Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And Gavrilo didn't like either of those things very much. When Franz Ferdinand went to visit Sarajevo on June 28, 1914, Gavrilo, along with other members of the Black Hand, a secret Serbian military society that apparently didn't care much about coming off as bright and sunny in their PR materials, launched a mission to kill the Archduke. The first attempt failed. One of the assassins chucked a bomb at Ferdinand's car, but it exploded instead on the car behind him, which was full of police officers. 
Oh well, good effort, thought Gavrillo, and he made his way to a nearby cafe to unwind with some coffee. Ferdinand drove away to safety, but then decided he wanted to see the officers that had been injured and commanded his detail to take him to the hospital for a royal visit. The convoy took a wrong turn on the way and got backed up in traffic. Right outside Gavrillo's cafe. Gavrillo looked up from his coffee to see Franz Ferdinand and his wife right in front of him, stuck in a stalled-out car. He got up, walked out onto the street, withdrew his pistol, and fired two shots, hitting Ferdinand in the neck and his wife in the stomach. They were both dead within the hour. Austria-Hungary was, let's say, a little bit miffed. They didn't know for sure whether Serbia was directly behind the assassination. Answer, probably. But they did know for sure that they were trying to stoke disunity among Yugoslavs to try to break up the empire. And they wanted to put an end to that. The best way to accomplish this, they figured, would be to kick Serbia's ass fast and hard. Just a little war, nothing too serious. Enough to let them know who's boss. But there was a problem. Serbia was aligned with Russia. And if they got involved, well, that would be bad for Austria. So Austria asked their biggest ally, Germany, if they'd support a little Serbian ass-whooping. Germany said, eh, fine, but keep it quick because, you know, Russia. No problem, replied Austria. Russia's big and slow, and all of their people are way east of here. So with Germany behind them, Austria issued an ultimatum to Serbia on July 23rd. It said that Serbia was to submit to investigation of the assassination by Austria, cease all propaganda efforts among the Yugoslavs, and hand over everyone associated with the Black Hand. Within 48 hours. It was an impossible demand, because Austria didn't want it met. As the clock ticked down on the 48 hours, Austria geared up for an invasion. But so did Russia who wondered whether their enemy Germany was really behind this whole thing. Answer, maybe. And Russia was allied with France, who were interested in a bit of a war with Germany anyway because of a previous land dispute. On July 25th, 1914, everybody's prepared for a fight. Germany and Austria-Hungary versus Russia, France, and Serbia. But just in the nick of time, Serbian Prime Minister Nikola Pasic delivered a response to the ultimatum accepting all of Austria's terms, except for one. Serbia wasn't allowed, constitutionally, to have a foreign nation participate in their internal justice system. So, Serbia would have to take care of the investigation into the Black Hand's role in the assassination themselves, with assurances to Austria that they'd make a good-faith effort to get to the bottom of things. It was an amazing concession. Just a day before, Winston Churchill had delivered a speech to the British Parliament saying that no nation could possibly accept the terms demanded by Austria. But here we were. There wouldn't have to be a war after all. But then Austria-Hungary was like, nah, fuck you anyway, and on July 28th declared war on Serbia. This is, and I hope I don't need to say it, the beginning of World War I. On August 1st, Germany declared war on Russia. Throughout this whole run-up, everybody else wanted nothing to do with this fight. It was stupid and meaningless and nonsensical. Britain, for instance, was allied with France, but they didn't actually want to join the hostilities. There was no good reason to fight. But that changed on August 3rd. 
Germany's plan was simple. They had France to the west and Russia to the east. But Russia wasn't going to be able to really seriously roll into battle for a while. So, as long as Germany could take Paris before then, they could take on their enemies one at a time. The only thing complicating this strategy was that France's borders were super fortified, with soldiers and battlements and forts and turrets. If Germany tried to march straight through, they'd get pummeled and bogged down. Instead, they decided to go around, through Belgium. Wait, what? said most of the rest of the world. Belgium was neutral, and Germany hadn't declared war on them. They just marched right in, hoping to stomp the unprepared Belgian forces and maybe commit a few dozen war crimes as they marched west, bypassing France. This really changed things. Britain was aghast and declared war on Germany, who started bombing civilians and using chemical weapons like the very nice government they were. With British involvement, the dominoes really began to topple. Japan was allied with the English, so they declared war on Germany and started invading islands in the Pacific. The Ottoman Empire of Turkey, for reasons too complicated to get into here, joined up with Germany. Then Italy came on board with the Allies and Romania. Then Bulgaria invaded Serbia. The lines on the Western Front hardened, and soon the nightmare of trench warfare was upon the French, British, and German soldiers. Africa was overtaken by fighting as colonial powers used their subjects as flak. The Middle East erupted as the Ottomans struck out in various directions, usually poorly. They blamed their failures on the Armenians under their rule and started to massacre that population. Germany tried to convince Afghanistan to attack British-controlled India. By the last quarter of 1914, most of the globe was mired in blood and guns and bombs but not the United States. Americans were totally dumbfounded by every new bit of news that made its way across the seas. We were so close to peace. Why was this happening? And in Europe, no less? The place that America looked up to as the home of enlightenment and sophistication and pluralism? Somebody had to stop this. And that somebody was Henry Ford. Yeah, that Henry Ford. In 1908, he'd introduced the Model T, the first affordable, dependable, and repairable automobile. It swept the nation. For the next decade, Ford Motors doubled in size and profits every year. In 1913, Ford invented the moving assembly line, which cut the manufacture time of the Model T from 12 hours to 2.30 and halved its cost. And in 1914, he offered every Ford employee a $5 a day wage for a 40-hour work week, which was almost triple the average American worker's income at the time. It was an audacious move that most onlookers thought would sink the company. But instead, it was a massive success. Lured by steady, dependable jobs, Ford's workers became steadfastly loyal to the company, and so too did the country. These were the three strokes of genius of Henry Ford. A cheap, dependable car, a mobilized assembly line, and a well-paid, loyal, skilled workforce. Every other idea he ever had? Disastrous. Take the birds, for example. From the time he was very young, Henry Ford loved birds. His first car ride, he said, took place on April 2nd, 1893, a date he never forgot because it was the day the Bobo Lynx arrived. 
he spent much of his free time in the woods, looking and listening for local songbirds. So, when he fell into all that Model T money, Ford knew what he wanted to do with it. To create a bird sanctuary. He bought up land along the Detroit River, a few miles south of the city, which he protected as wildlands. On it, he built birdhouses of his own invention. Then he imported 500 songbirds to place in his new venture. Ford said, They stayed around for a while, but where they are now, I do not know. I shall not import anymore. Birds are entitled to live where they want to live. We don't know where the birds went either, but we can take a pretty good guess at why they left. For one, Ford's birdhouses made no sense. They didn't have any relation to the kinds of nesting sites their proposed occupants were used to. And the birds themselves were almost all non-native to Michigan. Some were tropical. Most of them probably died rather than left. This could have been avoided if Henry Ford had bothered to, like, know anything about birds. Or ask an ornithologist. But Henry Ford hated ornithologists. He even hated the word. He preferred birdwatcher. Ornithologists, though, were just the tip of the iceberg of Ford's hate. He hated experts generally, and the educated, and education, and politicians, and Catholics. Still in all, the thing Henry Ford hated most was war. Hmm? What's that? Sorry, I'm being told that the thing Henry Ford hated most was Jews. But the thing he hated second most was war. From nearly the time Austria-Hungary attacked Serbia, Ford began to publicly grumble about what dummies these war-bound Europeans were. Henry Ford hated Europeans. With all their fine manners and history, Henry Ford hated history. He literally failed to place the American Revolution in the right century when asked. Still, he was rich and powerful, and he had a large pulpit. If Henry Ford called a press conference, the press would come. If he called President Wilson, President Wilson would listen. For the peace activists of America, Henry Ford, for all his liabilities, represented a unique opportunity. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. In 1915, the center of the peace movement was Chicago. Hey, way to redeem yourself from all those crazy religious cults from a couple episodes back, Chicago. Chicago was the center of the peace movement because Chicago was home to Jane Addams, one of my no-bones-about-it all-time greatest heroes. Addams helped lead the fight for women's suffrage, 
was an early and powerful force for women's rights. She founded a lot of stuff, including but not limited to the Pragmatist Movement of Philosophy, the ACLU, the League of Nations, Sociology, let's say that again louder this time, the entire discipline of sociology, and most importantly, Hull House, which housed, fed, edified, and educated the poor, immigrants, women, and children in Chicago, and formed a new social order for cities to follow throughout the world based on community, egalitarianism, democracy, and equanimity among all people. From there, she tracked the disease vectors of typhoid fever, developed what we now call continuing education, and so much more. She won the Nobel Prize. In 1915, she was elected chairman of the Women's Peace Party and invited to head the International Congress of Women at The Hague. There, she was placed in charge of finding a way to end the war. That way, no doubt, would be international arbitration. There were two prongs to the effort for peace under Adams. The first was lobbying and petitioning work in the states, which was done mostly by the Emergency Peace Federation, which Adams named Louis Lochner to head up. The 28-year-old University of Wisconsin grad was a leading American pacifist. The foreign arm of Adams' peace plan was headed by Rosika Schwimmer, a Hungarian Jewish pacifist and feminist. She'd been living in London, working as a reporter when the war broke out, at which point she realized she couldn't go home and started working for peace. At The Hague with Adams, Schwimmer's plan was to build a standing coalition of neutral governments with an open, public negotiation for peace. When Adams returned to Chicago, she asked Schwimmer to do what she could to feel out Europe, determining how far the neutral nations were willing to stick their necks out for peace and how willing the belligerents were to sit down at the table and end things. At first, the American hopes for peace were high. Public opinion was essentially split three ways. New England supported Britain, but German immigrants, of which there were tons, especially in the Midwest, naturally favored Germany. And then the pacifists, which had a plurality of public opinion. But as more and more word of German war crimes against Belgium came in, things began to shift. German soldiers burnt homes and killed 674 civilians in Dinant, including women and children. In Brabant, they stripped naked and raped a convent of nuns. In August of 1914, they razed the city of Leuven. They burned nearly the entire city to the ground, killing 248 civilians, expelling the entire population, and destroying the University of Leuven, and with it nearly 300,000 unique, invaluable medieval manuscripts and books. On April 22, 1915, Germany released 150 tons of chlorine gas against French divisions, in total defiance of the Hague Conference rules of war. And then there was the Lusitania, which was sunk by German U-boat on May 7, 1915, in Irish waters, killing 1,198 civilians, including 128 Americans. As far as most of the world knew, the Lusitania was a passenger ocean liner, and the world was again galled by Germany's callous indifference to the taking of innocent life. Germany argued that the Lusitania was actually an armed ship carrying munitions to Great Britain, which struck nearly everyone as a flimsy agitprop excuse for their actions. Even though, as it turns out, that was all actually true. Lusitania was covertly carrying munitions and was armed with secret anti-submarine deck guns. Whatever, it didn't matter. The point was, Germany looked real real bad. Because let's face it, 
they were pretty damn bad. Sure, there was also a concerted anti-German propaganda effort, but Germany wasn't exactly doing itself any PR favors with the chemical weapons and the sinking civilian ships and the raping nuns. Not to mention, their uniforms were full of skulls and spikes. They were begging to be disliked. As pro-German sentiment fell in America, the peace movement started to see its fortunes wane too. Even President Wilson, who had been steadfastly committed to keeping America out of the war, had started talking about preparedness. That is, whether the U.S. should begin ramping up for the possibility of war. But there was good news. Rosica Schwimmer came to America in the fall of 1915, having collected various memoranda, communiques, and depositions from world leaders and government figures that showed nearly everyone, neutral, allied, or central, was interested in brokering peace. She carried the evidence for peace in a black satchel, which she kept on her person at all times, carrying it protectively against her breast like a crusader who had found the Holy Grail or a mother improbably reunited with her lost babe. Lochner thought that, with this information, they could establish a delegation to negotiate for peace in Washington. Schwimmer thought they could go one step further, a peace delegation in Europe, with European leaders, maybe even the Kaiser himself. They could end the war, but they needed help. They needed Henry Ford. In August, Ford had publicly declared that he was willing to give up his entire fortune and even his life to achieve peace and end the war. Schwimmer and Lochner wrote to say it wouldn't take all that. In November, they jumped in a car and drove from Chicago to Henry Ford's Fairlane Estate in Dearborn, Michigan. There they made quick work convincing Henry and his wife Clara of their cause. Schwimmer appealed to Clara to organize a letter-writing and telegraph campaign of like-minded mothers to President Wilson to soften the ground, while Henry, Rosica, and Lewis tried to get a meet. Ford was manic. He demanded the trio set forth immediately. They'd travel to New York tomorrow to work some publicity waves and then straight on to Washington and the president himself. Lochner and Schwimmer were over the moon. Schwimmer took off ahead of the two men. On their trip, Ford insisted Lochner dictate as he workshopped witty slogans for the still-unannounced yet quickly upcoming press conference. Men sitting around a table, not men dying in a trench, will finally settle the differences, said Ford. Lochner nodded, so Ford urged him to jot it down. On November 21st, Ford set up at the Biltmore Hotel in Manhattan and called a meeting of prominent pacifists, including Adams, George Kirchway, the dean of Columbia University, Oswald Garrison Villard, a writer for The Nation, and Paul Kellogg, a journalist for the Pittsburgh Survey. The group talked about Schwimmer's hopes to convene a peace commission in Europe. Lochner jokingly made a comment about what the world would think of a ship full of pacifists steaming militantly towards the continent. To Ford, it didn't read as a joke. His eyes lit up. It was an idea so audacious and flamboyant that it caught his imagination the way nothing else had. After the lunch was concluded, he snuck off to begin commissioning the charter in secret before he even knew whether they'd get to meet with President Wilson. They did get that meeting. The next day, Lochner and Ford drove to Washington. Ford asked Schwimmer to stay behind with his secretary to keep working on the ship charter and the press statements. In one single conversation, Rosica received two moments of deep worry about her new ally. 
He told her that he had made a title for the final statement of the group to be delivered after their meeting with Wilson and along with the announcement of the cruise. Out of the trenches by Christmas. But... But Christmas was only a month away. It was an impossible timeline. When she heard the slogan, Schwimmer reportedly fainted. The other disturbing thing was an aside Ford threw at her, almost on his way out the door to head for Washington. He said he knew who was truly responsible for the war. The Jews. He tapped his head, saying, I've got the facts, and Bell hopped out the door to join Lochner. Well, this is an alarming turn. But Schwimmer was used to all brands of anti-Semitism and let the moment pass. She might have wondered, though, if at that point Ford realized that she was Jewish. Probably not worth mentioning. Ford strode into the Oval Office ahead of the president, flopped down on the coziest chair in sight, threw his legs over the arm, and opened with a joke. I was driving by a cemetery and I saw a huge hole being dug. I asked the gravedigger, are you going to bury a whole family? No, said the gravedigger, this is for one man. Then why so big a hole? Well, you see, said the gravedigger, the fellow provided in his will that he must be buried in his Ford car because his Ford had pulled him out of every hole and he was sure it would pull him out of the last one. Then he got right to the point. If Wilson would build an official commission, Ford would pay for it. Wilson demurred and hemmed and hawed. Yes, he agreed it was a good plan, a good idea, but he was the president, and he couldn't just tie himself to any notion he was fond of. What if, for instance, a better plan still came up tomorrow? He couldn't very well marry himself to Ford before all the facts were in. Frustrated, Ford leaned over, looked the president in the eye, and gave his own Serbian ultimatum. If Wilson didn't declare the commission by 10 a.m. the next day, Ford would announce the ship on his own without him. If you can't act, he sharply concluded, I will. On the way out the door, Ford told Lochner that the president was a little man full of bunk. True to his word, the next morning at 10 a.m., Ford announced the voyage of the Oscar II in a bumbling, chaotic, meandering press conference. wonder what those are like. The ship was to sail in just 11 days on December 4th and would put a stop to the war by Christmas. Our ship, Ford thundered, will be armed with the longest gun in the world, the radio. The front page of the Chicago Tribune the next day read, Great War Ends Christmas Day, Ford to Stop It. Then it was time to start building the manifest. Every governor, lieutenant governor, and most federal judges were invited, Jane Addams, obviously, and William Jennings Bryan, the Secretary of State and world-famous orator, religious leader John Wanamaker, oh, and of course, Ford's best friend and personal hero, Thomas Edison, Ida Tarbell, Helen Keller, William Howard Taft, the Oscar II was shaping up to be a veritable who's who. A request was even sent to Pope Benedict XIV, who might have been flattered if he hadn't been dead since 1758. But anyway, the current Pope, Benedict XV, returned the invite without any grumbling, offering his standard response of God bless you, which Ford took as approving. In addition to the pacifists, statesmen, and leaders of industry, Ford also thought the mission could use some eye candy, or as he called it, sand. He telegrammed invites to a few dozen co-eds at Vassar, asking them to come aboard. 
When the crowd of 15,000 amassed in Hoboken to see off the Oscar II, painted with huge white crosses across its bow, the illustrious commission was... less illustrious. Jane Addams found the whole thing too ostentatious and sensational and bowed out. Same with John Wanamaker. Ida Tarbell and Helen Keller sent letters of meek support but declined to join the voyage. William Howard Taft said that when he received the invitation, he laughed so hard he shook the 23rd Street Bridge. William Jennings Bryan came to the docks, but got cold feet. Thomas Edison, then 68 years old, boarded the ship to have a look around with Ford, but declined to join the journey. You must stay on board. You must stay on board, Ford implored him. Then, distraught, he leaned over into his ear and whispered, I'll give you a million dollars if you come. But Edison was almost completely deaf and responded, What? This time shouting, Ford repeated, I said I'll give you a million bucks if you join me. It sure is, replied Edison, slapping Ford on the shoulder and wandering off the boat. Ford's first column of support disintegrated before boots even hit the ground. He still had the governor of North Dakota and the editor of the New York Evening Mail and Judge Ben Lindsay of Denver, who was an early proponent of criminal justice reform, but mostly known as a free love wildabout. The lineup left something to be desired. But it did include 40-odd journalists, even though many of them were hostile from the start. And the send-off was sure something. 15,000 people of all walks of life. The band played the hit song, I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier. And the crowd roared. As the Oscar II shoved off and out of New York Harbor, part of the mass broke out into a round of Deutschland Uber Alice, which prompted another part to angrily respond with God Save the Queen. The peace ship was already struggling to unify even its supporters, a harbinger of things to come. A man calling himself Mr. Zero dove into the water and made a vain attempt to catch the liner. He was retrieved by the authorities and explained that he was swimming to reach public opinion. Somebody sent a crate full of squirrels to the deck with a note reading to the good ship Nutty. They got loose and infested most of the voyage. But Ford didn't care. He was buoyed by the turnout. He bowed over and over, blowing kisses to the throngs on shore. He acted as witness to a marriage overseen by the ship's captain. It was a beautiful day. Fine. So some joked, and some jabbed. Many of the papers outwardly criticized him, which was a new experience for the Golden Boy. Still, Ford reckoned, we've got their attention. We've got them thinking. And, he said, if you got people thinking, they'd soon enough get to thinking right. Yes, Ford was more than satisfied with the beginning of his quest. To Europe! To peace! He exclaimed. Oh, wait a second, do I need a passport? He realized. And the ship was ordered to full stop while they waited for someone to go grab him one. Then, to Europe to peace. The first days of the voyage were confusing and confused. The mission was short on details, like where precisely it was going and what exactly it would do when it got there. Even the new marriage was an issue. The captain confessed that it didn't actually work like that and there wasn't a single lawyer on board to certify the matrimony. So they took a vote and unanimously the passengers of the peace ship recognized the marriage of Burton Braley and Marion Rubicam. The crew could get something done after all. And what a motley crew it was. 
almost entirely made up of writers and activists, with barely a single credible public figure aside from Ford on view. But Ford, in his wild element, was like a force of nature. He strode about the decks pontificating and joking with a disarming natural charisma. Soon enough, the reporters, most of whom had taken the assignment as a joke or even an opportunity to bolster the war cause, were won over by the magnate's wit and guilelessness. It helped, perhaps, that on board, Ford tempered and reined in expectations. The chief effect I look for is psychological, he said. I consider that the pea ship will have been worthwhile if it does nothing more than it has already done in driving preparedness off the front page of the newspapers and putting peace there instead. Spirits were high. Newlyweds and co-eds and hard-drinking reporters roamed the halls, singing and drinking and loving and screwing, while a menagerie of journalists and hangers-on flocked forward like ducklings, hanging on his every lunatic word. Meanwhile, the more serious commissioners were held up in locked meeting rooms with Roska Schwimmer, who still carried her precious satchel of peace papers with her at every moment. Then began the telegraphs. As promised, Ford and his allies deployed the Marconi as their main weapon. In the first week, Ford paid $1,000 to have a sermon sent out to North America, the longest message ever dished. Nobody picked it up. What did Ford care? Money wasn't the problem. War was. And the pea ship was well on its way to solving that, no matter how much it cost. Nothing would stand in their way. Then, on December 9th, something stood in their way. President Wilson made an address to Congress where he urged for preparedness. And Congress responded by funding the building of battleships, cruisers, destroyers, and gunboats. Ford fired off a blistering message directly to the President of the United States of America, urging him to cease the mad race for armament and throw his support behind the peace ship. Now. His demands went unanswered. But they caused a great schism aboard the Oscar herself. A few of the delegates, including Lochner and Schwimmer, had drafted a Declaration of Principles of the Ford Peace Party, which directly criticized preparedness and thus the President and Congress. S.S. McClure, editor of the New York Evening Mail, said he wouldn't sign it. He wouldn't openly oppose his government. Judge Lindsay said the same, and North Dakota Governor Hanna, too. Schwimmer accused McClure of trying to sow mutiny, and Lochner said that anybody who didn't sign had only come for a free ride. Eventually, a compromise was struck, with Ford saying everyone who worked for peace was welcome, but also emphasizing his belief that preparedness was in direct contrast to that goal. The delegates begrudgingly agreed to it, and a peace about peace upon the peace ship was founded. Still, the newspapers were lost. All the goodwill of Ford's early days was spent up in a virtual hour. Now reporters sent stories reading, The Dove of Peace has taken flight, chased off by the Screaming Eagle. There was a bigger problem for the commission than infighting or hostile press, though. Spanish flu. The deadly pandemic hit the boat hard, driving many of the passengers and crew to their bunks, including Henry Ford himself, who virtually disappeared from view shortly after the declaration. In his place stepped Rosica Schwimmer, who honestly seems like she was pretty awesome, but she was undeniably more bristly and standoffish than the ebullient Ford had been. 
Her relationship to the reporters was ice cold. She accused them repeatedly of trying to sink the mission, figuratively, I mean. They, in kind, demanded repeatedly to see the contents of her secret briefcase. She, in turn, locked them in a meeting room. Sick, weary, disagreeable, and broken, the peace ship steamed into Norway on December 18th. The group was unraveling. The papers were turning them into a constant joke. Their leader had sunk into a sickly depression, and they had just seven days to end the war before Christmas. But all would be righted when the Oscar II set eyes upon the mass of peace supporters that awaited them in Oslo. All eight of them. Eight college students. That was the welcoming committee. Ford forced himself to walk off the ship and to the hotel under his own power. But upon arriving, he collapsed in his bed. He wasn't seen again during the whole of the expedition. Except on December 23rd, when his assistant Dean Marquis, who had objected to the whole plan from word one, finally convinced Ford to abandon the mission and return home. Marquis practically carried him into a cab in the early morning, under wraps. But Lochner figured out what was going on, and he and some others flew down the hotel steps and onto the boulevard to intercept. Marquis' crew and Lochner's smashed right into one another, and the brief pacifist battle of Oslo ensued, while Ford slipped away to a waiting train, to a waiting ship, to another waiting train, to Michigan. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. The delegates were crestfallen. Some believed Ford would return as Christ-like as ever. But for the most part, spirits were crushed. Various members, including Lochner and Schwimmer, vied for control. Financing became intermittent. Still, the commission proceeded. Stockholm was kind and cordial, even though Sweden was too afraid of Russia to lobby for any peace that might weaken Germany and expose them to risk. They reached Denmark, where they might have had some success, except that Copenhagen had recently passed a law forbidding foreigners to address the Danish people on matters of war. They had trouble getting to their next neutral nation, Holland, because it required them to pass through Germany. But eventually they made it, traveling by special German permit via a sealed train with the windows papered over. The Dutch didn't much care for the peace warriors. They thought Ford and his whole ship thing were too boisterous and naive. Infighting resumed. Schwimmer was seen as undemocratic and authoritarian, and anyway, her very presence as a Hungarian undercut the neutrality of their mission in the eyes of many of the Danish and Dutch and Swedish they were looking to reach. Members began to withdraw. 
A few stayed on in Holland, forming something like the conference they had intended. Again, the possibility of nabbing Jane Addams and William Jennings Bryan were floated as delegates, and Ford, too. Maybe he'd come back with them. But none of them ever did. Only two of the ten appointed American delegates ever sat at the table at all. Still, the whole thing was not a complete failure. When the peace ship first made land, the neutral nations had all said, essentially in unison, that they didn't want any part of this nonsense. But largely through Lochner's hard work and diplomacy, six countries eventually sent delegates. Ford continued to work for peace from Michigan, and he thought he had nearly achieved it, with President Wilson giving a speech in which he called for peace without victory on January 3rd, 1917. Days later, the British intercepted a telegram from Germany urging Mexico to invade America. Three months later, the United States declared war. Louis Lochner went on to become a foreign correspondent for the Associated Press. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 1939 for his reporting on Nazi Germany. He was arrested by the SS in 1941 and imprisoned for five months at Bad Nuremberg before being released in a prisoner exchange for German diplomats. When he returned to America, he went on a nationwide press junket decrying Nazism and warning the U.S. of fascism. Hungary became independent from Austria at the end of the war in 1918 and Rosika Schwimmer was named ambassador to Switzerland. She was the first female ambassador in the world, but fled to Chicago when a military coup overcame the country in 1921. She lived there the rest of her life, which she spent trying to build a world government. Her work and writing helped form the basis of the League of Nations and, later, the United Nations and World Court. She was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 1947, but no award was given that year. She died of pneumonia on August 3rd, 1948. Which brings us to Henry Ford. Oh boy. <laughs> well, the good news is that he did, in his way, continue to work for peace, mostly through his personal newspaper, the Dearborn Independent. The bad news is that by 1920, Ford had come to solidly believe the best way to work for peace was to stop the, quote, Jewish menace. For 91 issues beginning in the spring of 1920, the paper printed headline stories like The International Jew, The World's Problem, and Jewish Plan to Split Society by Ideas. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion was a phony book written up in Russia in 1903, proclaiming to be a Jewish plan for world domination. Henry Ford printed and distributed 500,000 copies of an English translation throughout America. A collection of his hateful conspiratorial articles were translated into German, published in 1922 by Theodore Fritsch. They were very popular, with people like Balder von Schirach, Heinrich Himmler, and, yeah, you guessed it, Adolf Hitler, who wrote in Mein Kampf, only a single great man, Henry Ford, who is the Jew's fury, still maintains full independence from the controlling masters of the producers in a nation of 120 million. In an interview with the Detroit News in 1931, Hitler called Ford his inspiration 
and noted that he kept a full-sized portrait of the automagnate behind his desk. So, there's that. If you want to get a little queasier still, try this on for size. Before her death, Roska Schwimmer told Burnett Hershey, who had been a reporter on board the Oscar II and who wrote a book about the journey, from which much of this episode stems, that she believed her abrasive relationship with Ford upon the ship had directly contributed to calcifying and intensifying his anti-Semitism. In the end, what had the peace ship accomplished? Had it accomplished anything? Some argued that it killed the peace movement single-handedly. Others said that work had been done by the newspaper's ridicule. Still some blamed it, and Ford, for the next world war. Although, let's be clear, Hitler was doing just fine being an anti-Semite before he found Henry Ford. The mission of this show is to shine light on human error. And as I'm wrapping up here, it seems to me that I'm perhaps the one who's made the mistake. Because here I am, pumping an hour's worth of derision into a naive but at least mostly well-meaning peace mission that cost only $465,000 and no lives. Okay, one life. One passenger did die from the flu. Still, to focus on the foolishness of the peace ship in the face of its enemy, a useless, incoherent war that killed 37 million for no appreciable or even delineable purpose is itself a more wrong-headed thing than the boat. The peace ship never stood a chance. But that's not the fault of its riders. It's the fault of the millions who gave up on peace when it was, yes, actually, right within grasp. There were those who lobbied for war, sure, but more than that were the innumerable fence-sitters and their insufferable silence. Compared to anyone and everyone who sat at the breakfast table tisking at their morning newspaper, Lochner and Schwimmer and, yes, even Ford for all his hateful evil, were geniuses, heroes. Or, as Ford put it, I wanted to see peace. I at least tried to bring it about. Most men did not even try. The peace ship didn't let down the world. The world let down the peace ship. Music for today's episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rose Vare, and Anime is Trash. Thanks to everybody who's subscribed, rated, and reviewed the show, and to all of y'all who found us on the modern scourge of social media. That group can still include you. Just go searching for our Facebook group, facebook.com slash theconstantpodcast, and our Twitter handle, at constantpodcast. And a special shout-out to Alyssa Shrum, who donated at the Constantine level and says, and when I go, make sure I'm wearing rouge and gold. Duly noted, Alyssa. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to Hull House and the women's peace movement, this has been The Constant. As I walk through this wicked world, searching for light in the darkness and Is there only
Federico Sklopis from Italy, Jacob Stamfli from Switzerland, and Beren Marsus Antonio de Araujo. Federico Sklopis from Italy, Jacob Stamfli from Switzerland, and Baron Marsus Antonio Giaraju from Brazil. How's my Portuguese, Brazilians? As I walked on through troubled times, my spirit gets so downhearted sometimes. And where is the harmony, sweet harmony? Cause each time I feel it slipping away, it just makes me wanna cry. What's so funny about peace, love, and Araju? Araju. Let's try it again. Well, that's stupid.